ever since he was about two years old, my son has had a job that he does around the house. And it happens on garbage day. Uh, after the people come and pick up the trash, he and I will go down our driveway and uh, bring up the big garbage can and the recycling bin. And I'm in charge of the big garbage can, and he's in charge of the recycling bin. And so it was really cute, especially when he was younger, to see him push this red bin with all of his might up the steep uh, driveway. And ever since, that's just kind of been uh, our arrangement. I get the big stuff, he gets the small stuff, and he is my fellow worker. And in a very similar way, God tells us that we are his. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, God describes us, his people, as fellow workers with him. And we're told that God, even though he could do everything himself, he invites us to join him in his work. We're told that he does all of the heavy lifting himself, but that he, he still gives us some important little stuff to do, too. And this amazing statement in 1 Corinthians is the springboard to a biblical concept that we call uh, stewardship. Stewardship is seeing ourselves as God's manager of everything that we have, of our time and our talent and our treasures in life. And in this series in particular, we're going to take a look at the third category, which is treasure. We're, we're thinking a bit about financial stewardship. And the big idea behind the title of the series, which is Heart, Head, and Hands, is that stewardship ought to flow from three basic areas in each of our lives. Last week, if you were here, you know that Tom talked about how it flows out of our heart, that we're, we're meant to be so impacted by the grace of God and the love of God and the goodness of God that we should long to give back to him from the deepest places of our hearts and and so this week, we're going to think about how it ought to flow out of our heads, okay? And, and what I mean by that is out of our minds, out of our thinking. And, and the big idea that we're going to think about this morning is that stewardship, joining in God's work on the earth, just plain makes sense. And that anything else than that is, is illogical. If God is who he says that he is, and if he has done the things that this book tells us he has done, then it, then it only makes sense for us to see ourselves as his fellow workers and to actually join in his work. But as uh, Tom shared last week, the idea of stewardship begins with a conviction that leads to a resolution, and I hope to have it up on the screen for you this morning, um, but our projector broke. So just imagine this up on the screen, okay? Imagine a beautiful slide, beautiful slide. But the conviction behind stewardship is this. Everything I am and everything I have is from God and belongs to God, and I am simply the manager of it. And in light of that, last week we looked at a resolution which said, Therefore, I am going to manage everything I've been given in life in order to honor God and maximize my impact for the gospel. So the first thing that I want to ask you this morning, and don't raise your hand or anything, just really ask yourself this question in your own heart and in your own mind is, do you believe that conviction? Does that sentence that I read 
resonate any place in your heart and your mind? Are you convinced that all that you have is from God and belongs to God and that he has simply granted it to you to manage? The reason that I ask that question is because if we are not convinced of the conviction, then we will never, ever be resolved to the resolution. So today, what I want to do my best to do, and and I hope that God will inspire this within your own mind, is, is to convince you that the conviction and the resolution that I just read for you are not in any way pie in the sky platitudes. That, that this is not some great lofty idea that's reserved for especially godly people. But, but I want to try to convince you that these two statements are entirely logical, perfectly rational, and reasonable in every way, that they are nothing more than just plain common sense. And I want to begin with you this morning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, as Mary Kay read for us. This is not just the beginning of the Bible, but this is the beginning of time. The sweeping story of the entire scriptures begins with a trumpet blast. And Genesis 1.1 is one of the most profound statements that has ever been uttered. The Bible starts with this thundering declaration that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you believe that verse and that verse alone, then the conviction and the resolution make perfect sense. Now, there are many, many people in the world who do not believe uh, Genesis 1.1. I mean, that's really obvious. Uh, even in schools, it's, uh, in many places, you can't even mention Genesis 1, chapter 1. And the most common viewpoint in the United States uh, that is kind of an alternative to what's presented in, in Genesis 1.1 is um, that the existence of the universe is here because of something called the Big Bang. I'm sure we've all heard of the the Big Bang Theory, it, it, it teaches something like this, that approximately 13.8 billion years ago, um, uh, whatever, not, not space, that hadn't been formed yet, but there was an unstable form of primordial energy. And it was under so much heat and pressure that it caused this astronomical explosion, which caused the universe to form And as it formed, the universe expanded, and the further away that it got from the explosion, the more that it began to cool. And as it cooled, gravitational forces caused the formation of galaxies and of solar systems and stars and planets, including the Earth itself, which is our home here. And that on the Earth, through evolution, which requires a lot of time. It requires a lot of mutations along the way, and it also requires natural selection. Life was formed, and this is how reality, as we come to know it today, what we, what we sit in and look at and enjoy came to be. Now, it is true that there is evidence that the universe expanded from one point. Uh, the Hubble Space Telescope has proved to us that, that space itself is actually expanding now. It's, it's not just the universe that's expanding. It's, it's space that is expanding with the universe uh, within it. And so what you can do is you can work your way back and you can see that there was one event that started the universe. But the question is, 
what was that event? Uh, Christians would point to Genesis 1, chapter 1. But to a person, uh, but the Big Bang Theory would point to something different. What the Big Bang Theory at its core attempts to do is to explain the questions of creation without God in the picture, right? The Big Bang Theory tries to explain the universe without a creator. And and for just a few minutes this morning, I want to, to just have you consider this that it's not just the, the, the Bible that, that would speak against that. It's also logical sense. And I want to share with you two reasons why I really believe that's true, although, although there are more than this. Two of the problems with the Big Bang Theory is that, first of all, it provides no explanation for the existence of anything. Okay? And the second is like it. The Big Bang Theory also provides uh, no explanation for the existence of everything. Okay, I want to think about those two things for, for, for a minute. It provides no explanation for the existence of anything. The, the elephant in the room on the Big Bang Theory, and, and I really tried to research this, not, not on websites that were against it, but were for the, the Big Bang Theory, is this. How did it start in the first place? Okay? Where did the original components, the primordial primordial energy, come from? That is one of the great questions of the Big Bang Theory. Uh, This, to me, is so interesting. Albert Einstein, you've heard of him, right? We all have. He was originally a pantheist. Uh, A pantheist is someone who believes that the universe itself, that everything that exists is God. Okay, so the planets are God. The earth is God. The trees are God. You and I are God. The sugarless gum that you are chewing is God. There's no distinct personal or separate God. He believed that the universe itself was God and therefore that the universe itself was eternal. And this uh, theory of belief works really well with the Big Bang Theory because if the universe is eternal, then it doesn't need a creator. But when he was developing the theory for relativity, Einstein discovered a problem. His equations led him to conclude that the universe actually did have a beginning. And if the universe had a beginning, that meant that the universe could not be eternal. So if the universe isn't eternal, it must have a cause. And if it must have a cause that led him to recognize that the universe must have been created. And this bothered Einstein so much that into his original theory of relativity, he purposely introduced what's been called a fudge factor. Okay, This was a mathematical error, a really simple one. He, he put in a, a number zero that was divided. He tried to divide something by zero. And what happened was this was discovered pretty quickly by other scientists, and they pointed it out to Einstein, and he admitted to it. And he called it the greatest blunder of his entire life, purposely sabotaging the theory of of relativity. Einstein realized out of that that pantheism was impossible, and so he converted to something that's called deism. 
A deist believes that, that there is a God who created the universe, but he's a very distant and personal God. An illustration that's sometimes used is, is that it's a God who's like a clockmaker who, who created a clock, winds it up, sets it in motion, and then leaves and goes on vacation and has, has no interest in what it is that he created. Einstein became a deist. Now, this is so important. Albert Einstein never became a Christian. Albert Einstein never read his Bible and said, I, I agree with Genesis 1.1. Albert Einstein never had a spiritual experience with God. He never had a friend who, who led him to Christ. But Einstein was compelled against his own wishes to recognize that the science and the physics and the math and the evidence obligated him to admit that the universe was created. Without a creator, there is no rational explanation for the existence of anything. Well, the, the second problem is similar. The second problem is that the Big Bang Theory provides no explanation, not just for the existence of anything, but for everything. And what I'm talking about here is the incredible intricacy and complexity and perfection of life, okay? Forget the Bible just for a second, okay? Pretend the Bible doesn't exist. Pretend that you don't know Genesis 1-1. You've never heard it before. And let's just consider the world around us for a few minutes with our minds, okay? Use your imagination for a minute. Try to picture the size and the scope of the universe, the stars, the galaxies, how big and great this place is, the moon, the feeling that you have as you walk out into the sun and are warmed by it. Now think about the fragility here of animal life and plant life and human life. And I wish we had time to go into all of the exact requirements that are necessary to sustain them. And that even if one of those exact requirements were to be out of whack, we would all be dead how the earth provides so perfectly for everything that we need, oxygen and water and vegetation and chocolate and bacon. Our world is so rich with bacon, isn't it? It's a world where science works. It's a world of, of technology. It's a world where we are stirred by things like art and music and photography. It's a place where living beings can think and we can feel and we can touch and taste and smell and see. It's a world where two people can fall in love. They can get to know each other. They can get married. They can have children together. And, and there's a little them that, that grows up, that laughs and smiles and, and has fun. I mean, this is a world where an owl can hear the heartbeat of a field mouse that's buried under 12 inches of snow. Think about all the intangibles in life, love and sorrow and humor and imagination and warmth and intelligence and passion and pain and longing and suffering, all of the highs and lows in the experience of life. And, and the question is this, just using your mind, 
In your experience, do explosions of energy cause things like this? Have you ever thrown a stick of dynamite into something hoping that it would make it better? Have you ever needed to remodel your bathroom and and chucked in a grenade and (laughs) gone back in and there was a jacuzzi tub um, (laughs) sitting there? I don't mean to make fun of anything. I, I, I really, truly do not. But I hope your answer is no. And here's why. Because what we understand is that in every other area of life, except for the Big Bang, the effect of something must resemble its cause. Think about that for just a second. The effect of something must resemble its cause. Listen to this. This is because, simply put, you cannot give what you do not have. So it is impossible for an effect to possess something its originating cause did not have. That being the case, how can one believe that an impersonal, immoral, amoral, excuse me, purposeless and meaningless universe accidentally cause beings that are full of personality, morals, meaning, and purpose? Only mind can create mind. In the end, it's either matter before mind or mind before matter, and all scientific, philosophical, and reasonable evidence points to the latter. Here's here's the thing. I, I mean this with all sincerity and humility and care. But atheists believe in trillions and trillions of shocking, stunning, staggering coincidences. Order from chaos. Organization from disorganization. Life from non-life. And an atheist should truly feel like the luckiest person in all the world. They should feel just in the fact that they live safely on this planet and they can breathe and see and everything else, like they have won the lottery trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of times over. And again, I I say this not to be witty. I, I just say this in truth. Christians do not have that kind of faith. I cannot believe in that many number of coincidences myself. Christians only have to believe in one miraculous thing, and that is God. And God is not something that we just take by faith, okay? It's something that is evident to us as we look around. And so as we look around at the universe, as for us, we we recognize that creation demands a creator. When we read Genesis 1, chapter 1, it just confirms for us what our observations tell us in the first place. The Bible launches dramatically by introducing us to a God who is the great high architect of the heavens and the earth. And we're told that he's eternal. He exists outside of space and time so that he's capable of creating space and time. He is the cause of the universe who is uncaused himself. And we're told that he spoke and out of nothing, which is so important, atoms and molecules and matter came to be just at the very sound of the authority of his voice. The psalmist tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork 
every nook and cranny in all of creation, we're told in the Bible, laughs and applauds and cheers and sings to the glory of God. In Genesis 1, chapter 1, it's 1, verse 1, excuse me, is so important that it's the foundation of the entire Bible. Because if God can create all of this, and evidently he has, then what can't he do? You see, if you simply from your own mind alone believe Genesis 1, chapter 1, then the rest of the Bible becomes entirely plausible. Does that make sense? So, so let's just assume that the only thing that you know is that God created the world and that he gave us this book to, to tell us about himself, right? Which would be a minor miracle for God compared to the creation of the world itself. If that's true, that God created the world, then we should expect the, the Bible to present us with a God who is absolutely awesome, and it does. If God truly created the world, then we should expect that he's capable of other miracles and that those would be simple for him, and they are. Logically, as the creator, we should resemble him in some way, and we're told that we do. The Bible ought to be able to explain to us the reason that we were created in the first place. It does. It ought to give us answers to why life is. What's the purpose of life? It does that too. It should explain pain and suffering and difficulty, and that is also here. A God who can create the universe ought to have some sense of distance and holiness and, and power and majesty about him, and he does. What I'm trying to say is this, is if you believe simply Genesis 1, chapter 1, then the entire message of the Bible becomes not only plausible, but the more we read it and understand it, the more persuasive and convincing and rational it becomes. And by the way, I haven't even gotten to the gospel yet, right? Because later we're going to learn that, that God actually comes into creation himself. That his son dies for his own creation. He dies so that we can be forgiven and experience life with God eternally. And pretty soon after that, the Bible becomes not only persuasive, convincing, and rational, it becomes riveting and enthralling and wonderful. So why if creation itself, even apart from the Bible, proclaims and exclaims and screams that the universe has a creator, why do people begin, excuse me, why do people believe in the Big Bang? Well, I've got a great answer for you. It's not my answer, it's the Bible's answer. I want you to, to take a look at page 939 in your Bible. We're going to take a look at Romans uh, chapter 1. God answers this perfectly. But, but, but it's also very sad. This should really pull at our heartstrings, and, and I hope that it does. We're going to look at Romans 1, verse 18. And here's what God writes. This is, this is directly being tied to creation. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although 
They knew God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animal and and creeping things. Instead of worshiping the creator, they worship the creation. Now what this passage teaches us is is this. It, It says something that's really quite stunning. That the existence of God is evident. That it's plain to see. This passage would say, Just look around. It's there. But it tells us that the only reason that people don't see it is that by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. Uh, Like Einstein, what this passage is saying is, is that they live with a fudge factor that deep down they know doesn't belong. And they suppress the truth because if they acknowledged the truth, the Bible teaches in this passage, they would have to honor God. They would have to give thanks to him. They would be responsible to God in some way. And so we're told here that mankind grapples desperately in the dark for any other answer than this one. We're told that mankind becomes futile in his thinking, foolish in his heart, and he exchanges the glory of God for something lesser and lower. Men say, give us any answer other than God. I will take any truth other than that one. And even though the Big Bang Theory isn't entirely logical, it's the best we've got, so we'll take it. And and Christians... If we believe Genesis 1, chapter 1, this can never be us. If atheists are the luckiest people in all the world, which I do think they are, then Christians should be the most grateful people in all the world. Because we believe it's in our very creed that our Father, Almighty God, is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And in light of that, we accept that we undeniably and unashamably owe him our honor. I mean, we we admit that we are indebted to him for every breath and every thought and that anything that's good in us or with us, anything that we have or, or do is only a result of the gracious provision of our creator. You know, the psalmist says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And what that means is that everything is a gift. Everything is his. I am only God's guest in my own home and in my own job. The only reason that I have the family I have is that he invited me into it. Even my body is not my own. My life is not my own life. It's from him. It's his. It's just on loan. And so does it make sense from our minds that we are honor-bound believers to give God thanks? We are honor-bound to give him our gratitude in light of the fact that God created everything. How can we not praise him till we die? We have no claim on anything, and yet We've been given so much. 
Now, you might be asking the question, what on earth does this have to do with financial stewardship? Okay? About halfway through my week as I was writing this message, I was kind of asking the same thing, believe it or not. Um, but I want to remind, uh, just kind of draw to a close here by reminding us of both that conviction and that resolution that we started the service with. We, we began with this conviction. Everything I am and everything I have is from God and belongs to God, and I am simply the manager of it. Do you believe that? If you do believe that that conviction is true, then the resolution is just, an, it's just a logical implication of that, and, and the resolution is this. Therefore, I am going to manage everything I've been given in life in order to honor God and maximize my impact for the gospel, right? for God's work in the earth. Now, pastors are um, oftentimes really suspect when they start talking about money, and that's not just you who feels that way. I, I, I sometimes feel that way, you know, you, when, you, when you turn on the TV and, and that, that kind of thing. Um, but um, to, as Tom said on the, uh, on the series last week, he said that it's a fun time to do a series on financial stewardship because our budget is doing so great. I mean, this whole year almost, we've been ahead of our budget. Now I think we're $10,000 ahead of our budget, which is, is really at this time of the year for us, it's just a special, wonderful gift that we all um, appreciate. And um, so it kind of makes me feel freer to, to not feel so bad about talking about financial stewardship. N- not that I, I have any personal benefit out of it anyway. It doesn't matter if we meet our budget or not. I don't get bonuses at the, at the end of the year. None of the staff does. We would never accept them because it would, it would um, make us seem like we had self-interest whenever we talked about uh, financial issues. Um, but um, it, it isn't that, that... So this is a good time. Now, if this was a bad time and we were behind... Um, well, excuse me, let me back up for just a second and, and let me just say this. In light of our budget, there's no need for us to put any pressure on anybody, right? Not that we would ever want to do that anyway. It's not our, um, our way of relating when it comes to finances as a church to try to motivate people by guilt. And part of the reason why is that guilt is a terrible motivator. Um, can you think of anything good or great, or fun, or meaningful in the world that has ever been motivated by guilt? No. But I will tell you this. Tremendous things happen when people are motivated by gratitude. Because uh, gratitude breeds something that is very unique, that's very special, And it's something that guilt could never, ever, ever on guilt's best day even begin to produce, and that is generosity. Gratitude and generosity go hand in hand. And and I just wanted to share um, how I think this works. There was a girl quite some time ago when I was the youth pastor here who was getting ready to go on on one of our cross-training trips, which is a, a trip that goes overseas. And the students work really hard um, one way they do that is just to, to earn money towards their trip. Some of their money comes from the church. In fact, most of their money you all give, we all give together to support their trips. Some of the money they raise on their own, um, $100 of the money has to come from them. We, we ask that they would raise it themselves as their own personal um, sacrifice towards their trip. And then there's a larger sum that could come um, from their parents. And 
I remember I had a girl come up to me uh, the day that the money was due for her trip, and she said, you know, I'm, I'm having trouble uh, raising enough money, and I was wondering if I could just get a little bit of an extension and pay you a couple of months after the trip. And I said, um, you know, yeah, we can work that out, but is there a problem? Can we help in some way? Are you, are you just having a really hard time with the money? And I, I had to pull it out of her, but eventually what she told me was that her parents had offered to pay the whole trip for her. They'd offered to give her the money. And I said, well, you know, I'm not sure why do you need an extension then? And, and she said, well, she said, I've been really thinking about this. And she said, I am so grateful for everything that's been done for me and given to me by God just through our church, through Impact, that I decided that I wanted to pay the whole thing myself. What she was saying was, I know I don't have to, but I'm so grateful that I really want to. And I was shocked because this is a lot of money for a teenage girl. This is a lot of money for someone who's not a teenage girl. And when she did this, I'm sure that over those next couple of months, that decision that she made bumped up against other decisions that she had to make on spending and on entertainment and on her priorities. I'm sure that over the next couple of months, she cringed at times to think about how she could have spent the money that she had dedicated to give to this trip. And I'm sure that for her, over the next couple of months, it hurt. And the thing about generosity is, generosity always does. And that's one way that you can tell that generosity is is generosity because it hurts some. And sure enough, this girl, at the end of that two months, she hands me this great big fat envelope. And I just peeked in it before I, I, I gave it to Claire. And it was just filled with, with bills, right, that I'm, I'm sure were 20s and 5s and, and 1s. She just collected money and stuffed it into that envelope over time. And, and I say that because I really believe that that girl had tasted that conviction and that led her to live out the resolution. And the reason that I really believe that is because generosity is the unmistakable sign of a grateful heart. Gratitude is the only soil in all the world that ever springs up generosity. Generosity only grows there. Uh, It only comes out of gratitude. And and gratitude is, is just a heart condition that says, in light of the overwhelming provision that God has given to me, everything I've been blessed with by God through no merit of my own to the degree that his own son would give up his life for me just to be with me and make me his own. As King David said, I think so poignantly, I will not offer something to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. Generous giving is giving with a cost. And so here's my encouragement as it comes to this financial piece of stewardship. And, and I, I speak to myself here as well. We, we pastors do every week. Whatever it is that you choose to give to God in your own heart, give it like you mean it. Give it as God has given to you. And God has given to us generously and cheerfully and with delight and joy. I would encourage you to make your giving mean something to you. Make your giving hurt a little, because if it hurts, it will certainly mean something to you. 
give with a spirit of Romans chapter 1, a spirit of honoring God and giving thanks to God and, and a spirit that befits our eternal king. Christians give in part because we believe that the world is not an accident. We believe that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we believe that in the end, all things belong to him anyway. So with that in mind, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for everything. I I feel so weak to even begin to thank you for all the ways that I, I have been blessed by you. Most importantly, through your work, through your Son in this world to redeem and save me. I thank you that um, when, when we believe that you created the heavens and the earth, when we believe that all of this is because of you, we can rest. We don't have to be people who believe in coincidences or luck or chance. We believe that there is a sovereign ruler of the universe. And the Bible teaches us that deism is false, that that you are involved, you are active. You not only created the universe, but you sustain it. And we worship you for that. Please grow our gratitude for you. Please help us to more and more be captured by the unbelievable wonder of the story that you wrote. And please help us to be people who give joyfully in light of that and who long to join you in your work. We know that you don't need us, but we thank you that you invite us. And and that's a blessing to each one of us, even as it is to that girl who gave her gift so long ago. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus.